Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll dig into these words together. It's a great passage to look at. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might give us um, our ability to concentrate. Please help us to focus on the words that you have caused to be written, that you have inspired by your Spirit. And we do thank you for your word, the um, amazing thing that we have, the very words from you. And we pray, please, that they would change our lives today and every time we engage with them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard mentioned, we, uh, we're starting a new series uh, today. We're going back into the Gospel of Matthew. So we kind of tend to operate with terms, school terms. And some of you will be aware we're right in the middle of holidays, but coming into a new school term. And we're starting Matthew's Gospel again. We were doing it some time ago, and we got up to the end of chapter 20. And it is quite a remarkable part of the Bible that we're going to look at this morning. But the whole book is remarkable. It is an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Now we have a number of these independent accounts that record the events of the person of Jesus, what he said, what he did. And as you may have picked up in the recent months, we've gone through a series on where the Bible came from, how we got the Bible and all the evidence for it. These, are, these documents are very early. They go all the way back to uh, the first century, just a few decades after the events they record. Now that is quite remarkable in ancient history, uh, remarkable that we'd have such a thing. And this account, as I say, is written by Matthew, who was with Jesus during all of these times. He, he was there, he saw it, he moved with Jesus through all the, the, the adulation, the excitement, the hopes, the, the death, the crucifixion, the despair, and then the resurrection. And after all of these events, he writes these accounts. Now the evidence for the truth of these things that Matthew writes about is extraordinary. And it needs to be, because the claims that are made by these accounts are themselves extraordinary. Um, you know, uh, these claims are very obvious, actually, as you come to this particular passage. We're coming to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll be looking at these last, well, actually, the last six, well, a few days of Jesus' life. Matthew 21 lands right into the Sunday before the Friday that Jesus is crucified, six days before he's crucified this last week of his life in Jerusalem, around the city of Jerusalem, uh, before his death and then astonishing resurrection. And this little episode we're looking at in Matthew 21 kind of lays up for us incredible claims about the person of Jesus, who he is, on what we now call um, Palm Sunday. Now that is very significant for us, not the Palm Sunday bit, but the claims about Jesus. Because let me take you back a little bit further. What is Christianity? We know that many of you are kind of tuning in. You've been uh, taking advantage of the fact that church is so accessible, uh, given that it can come to your land room now. And we're really very thankful for that, though we're obviously the, the circumstances are dreadful. But many of you are tuning in new and thinking about these. What is Christianity? What is at the core of it? Christianity has been around a long time, 2,000 years. And because it's been around a long time, it's gathered a massive following. Well, it's not just gathered a massive following because of the age, but it's compelling. The evidence is compelling. But because of the massive crowd that it's gathered, its meaning has shifted and morphed in all kinds of different ways. Some say Christianity is all about love. That if you boil it down, it's just about being loving. And if you're a loving person, then you're a Christian or at least a acceptable as and so on others say it's about being moral 
People suggest that the reason Jesus came was to teach us how to live like the other prophets from other religions. Jesus came to bring a prophetic vision of life. Then there's a crowd of people in recent times who have made Christianity to be about prosperity and success and health. Now you get all these different ideas and then it's easy to be left thinking, well, I'm just going to take the bits I like. I'll just pick and choose and find the Christianity I find that I'm most comfortable with. Well, the book we're looking at, again, I mean, every book of the Bible, but Matthew particularly, is one of those books that has the purpose to introduce us to the true Jesus. The Jesus of history. Actually, how Jesus was and is, what he really was about. We're not left with just being at a cherry pick. We can actually go back to the source documents and work it out from the original. And this piece of the Bible, Matthew 21, brings to the surface one key thing that is at the heart of true biblical Christianity. And that is the truth about who Jesus is, his identity. Now, it is an episode where Jesus uh, comes to the city of Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 1. He approaches Jerusalem. He's across a hill from Jerusalem, a place called Mount of Olives. And he, he gets a donkey and he rides up into the city at a time where there's a very great large crowd who then, uh, verse 8 and verse 9, begin to sing songs of praise as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And verse 10, the city is stirred and asks, who is this? Now, that's the episode. It's a very short episode. We're not looking at a great deal of uh, text this morning. But what does it all mean? Well, what I want to do for you is uh, kind of tease it apart by looking at four pieces. And I think if we understand these four pieces, what I'm going to do is suggest that as you plug them back into the text, it'll all open up for us. What are these four pieces? Well, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a key player in this episode. Jesus arrives to Jerusalem and rides up into the city. Let's think about Jerusalem for a short time. Uh, we want to think about the, um, the, the, the timing of this particular episode. When did it happen? Third, I want to talk with you about the donkey or the cult. And fourth, I want to talk about the song that they sang. If we go through each of these, then plug them back in, I want to suggest you'll see very largely what this is about and who Jesus is in the midst of it. And then I want to apply that to us. Let me take them one by one. Jerusalem. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and so on that they might ride up into the city. Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, is an ancient city. It's there still today, as many of you, are, of course, are aware. Uh, but it was established uh, many thousands of years ago. And it was established uh, a thousand years before Jesus as the great city of Israel, the capital of that country. It was established by a man called David, uh, who was the greatest king of Israel, uh, the one that all other kings were referenced by and are compared to, King David. And then Jerusalem became the capital city of that people, the place where every king lived, where every legitimate king lived, the place where they were enthroned, where they came into their rule. Uh, it was the place where they were anointed as king. But Jerusalem was also the place where the temple of God was built. 
because Israel was not just a political entity, it was a, a, a community of people in relationship with God. And God had, in an extraordinary way, given himself to be present with his people in a temple. And that city, the city of the king, was the city of God's seat, his, the place where his uh, temple was, his presence was. It was the place where the sacrifices happened day after day, big and small, to enable that holy God to live amongst sinful people, to cleanse the people constantly so that God's presence could be there. Now, in Jesus' life, the city of Jerusalem figured hugely. Jesus grew up in the north in a place called Galilee, which was as far away from the city of Jerusalem you can get in the nation of Israel. Um, but even from that distance, the city of Jerusalem figured greatly. And Matthew records how Jesus was actually in his public ministry beginning, having, having begun in, in Galilee in the north, he begins to actually slowly move south to a particular moment where he makes very evident to his followers that that's exactly where he's going to the city of Jerusalem. Have a look with me at Matthew chapter 16, uh, perhaps the big turning point in the account of Jesus's life. Matthew chapter 16 is the place where um, Jesus, verse 13, puts it to his disciples, who are the people saying I am? Who's everyone you know, concluding that I am? What's my identity? And they offer various options. But verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, now who do you say that I am? And Peter, verse 16, on behalf of all the rest, answer, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the great leader, the ruler, the king that we've been waiting for. We realize now that you're the one. Now that's a significant moment. But then look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Here is the beginning of this clear movement that he communicates to his followers, a clear movement towards the city of Jerusalem. He is going up to that great city to be rejected, to be killed. Note this, for Jesus, Jerusalem is the place of hostility. It's the place where the Jewish leaders uh, who hated him, that's where they lived. And in chapter 15, you get this conflict account of Jesus, where the, the Jewish leaders express uh, opposition to Jesus, but they've come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the hotbed of hostility. Jesus knew that, and he knew that to go there was to step into the center of the storm, but that's exactly where he went, knowing that that would happen to him there. Why? Why does Jesus get driven to the city of Jerusalem? Because it's the city of the king. It's designed for the king. It was built to be the place where the king is enthroned. It was the place of the temple where the sacrifices happened to cleanse the people. It was the center of everything. And so Jesus was driven to go to that city, Jerusalem. Let me give you the second piece. It's the timing. You come back to Matthew 21 and we are now, as I say, six days before the crucifixion of Jesus, which happens on the Passover. 
So we, Passover was a religious festival of the Jewish people that happened every year. And this period of time, uh, just before the Passover and after the Passover, was a period of great festivals. And the timing's important because at that time, every year, the population of Jerusalem swelled. You know, it was a city of some thousands, but it turns into some estimates actually say two million. But that might be an overestimate. Back in AD 60, it was that kind of order. But hundreds of thousands of people flocked from around the world to Jerusalem at this time of the year. And it was a time of nationalistic pride. It was the time where they celebrate the great day of their salvation in their historical past under Moses, which formed them as a nation. This was their national day, if you like. This was the time of year when they would have had boxing kangaroos hanging out the windows of their cars. It was that kind of moment where, they, where the young men would have all got um, southern crosses tattooed on their backs and stuff. It was that kind of day. It was National Pride Day. So the timing of this moment is a time when there's a huge population, there's great fervour around being a Jew and what the Jews could be and what God intends for them. Third, the donkey. If you look there at verse 2, Jesus says to two of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, a baby donkey. Um, Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything about you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now the donkey and a baby donkey, what is that about? Well, Matthew gives you the hint there in verse 4 and 5, but let's go back and look at it. It comes from Zechariah chapter 9. See if you can find the book of Zechariah in the Bible. It's uh, way back at the end of the Old Testament. Um, And uh, let's see if we can get it. Zechariah chapter 9. It's an extraordinary prophecy written many centuries before the coming of Jesus. And chapter 9, verse 9 says these words rejoice greatly daughter of zion shout daughter of jerusalem that's two ways of saying jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey here is the king who comes a king who comes not just on a, not on a war horse, on a great white charger, but on a donkey, on the baby donkey, on the lowest of the animals that you could possibly ride. And I dare say the image is such that the king comes riding with his feet, dragging on the ground as he's on this baby donkey. It's a very humble kind of picture. But such is the expectation that the great king will come and the great king will come on a baby donkey. But the consequence of this, verse 10, is that I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. When the king comes, he'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from the sea to the sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There's a king coming who will rule the planet that will emerge out of this small nation, who will bring peace. And he will bring, verse 11, a covenant established by blood, which will mean freedom for the prisoners. 
Now, it's a powerful prophecy. The king is coming, the world will be saved, put right, and he will rule from the ends of the, to the ends of the earth. And I, without wanting to trivialise it, but you get, I just, I don't know why I go this place, but you, I think of kids left alone at home. You've got a bunch of kids left alone at home, perhaps for the first time, and the eldest two are having a ball. They're inviting all their friends around, and the place is chaotic and a mess and a disaster, and the younger kids are hiding in their bedrooms, waiting for the return of the parents. Because with the return of the parents, they know that order will be established again. And there's a sense in which the prophecy here is saying, with the return of the great king to his world, order will be re-established. War will cease. There will be peace. And he will rule from one end of the earth to the other. There's the third thing, the donkey. Because the donkey is evidence that this king is come. Let me give you the last one, the song. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 21, you get uh, evidence of this indication of this song that's sung. Uh, there's a few uh, lines to this song. Hosanna to the son of David, verse 9. Hosa- Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. It's a quote from, from the book of Isaiah, but also from Psalm 118. And the, uh, the, the song that's sung is well known by the Jews. Everybody at a certain time would gather together for a feast, various feasts throughout the nation. And at the time of this feast, there would be a choir who would sing Psalm 118. And apparently we're told in history, as the psalm got to the Hosanna line, Hosanna, which means originally it means uh, God saves, but it just became a, a way of talking about praise. But when everyone got, when the choir got to the word Hosanna, all, all the, the, the people of Israel would wave their palm fronds and sing those words. And you get the words here, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, originally that was just a way of talking about the blessing on any pilgrim who came to the temple. But early Jewish scholars actually recorded in the Psalm, Psalm 18, that those words referred to the coming Messiah. Blessed is the coming King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there are the four things. Jerusalem, the city of kings, the place of the temple, the place of sacrifice, the place where the king is enthroned. The timing, massive crowd come to this city at this time for the Passover so that the numbers have swelled and there's a sense of national pride and anticipation and expectation. Uh, The donkey, uh, an animal from ancient prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, which spoke about the coming king who would come in power to bring peace over the whole world but would come humbly, lowly. And then the song, a song that's sung, anticipating the coming Messiah. Now you put all of those four pieces together. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem. He's travelling slowly south towards this great city in his world. 
And he's traveling there towards a great meeting, towards a tragic meeting, where his blood will be shed in the city of kings, in the city of his kingdom. It was a city built for him, the great king. But he comes now to the city and aware of the full significance of what it is for him to come to his city, he sends to get a donkey, the foal of a donkey, something that's already organized. We don't know how. The other accounts that record this uh, suggest Jesus has arranged it, but we don't know. Is it a divine thing? But that's not important. Matthew doesn't tell us how he's got it arranged. But he gets his disciples to go and get a baby donkey so that he can ride up into the city on this donkey. At the time of the Passover celebration, when the crowds are swelling, when there is a heightened nationalism and expectation about what God might do for his people one day with these prophecies in mind, Jesus gets the donkey knowing exactly what he's doing. He rides up into the city to the praise of a great crowd, who sing the song of the Messiah. And Matthew says, verse 4, all of this took place to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Now he says that, he adds that prophecy there in verse 5, because at the time they didn't see it. At the time they had their prophecies waiting and anticipating a great event when the king would arrive. The king did arrive. He came up in exactly the fashion that the prophecies said and they kind of saw it but didn't really see it because verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this man? But the crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They see something but don't quite see it. But Matthew, Matthew finally sees it because after Jesus is killed and all the crowds reject him and the disciples run in despair, how can the king, the great king who's going to bring peace, be himself killed by our enemies? How can that be the king? But then God raises him to life again showing that in his death, he does bring peace. He brings the end of the great enemy against his death. He deals with sin and God's judgment and Satan. And he makes it possible for a new creation to be established one day and for there to be forgiveness for rebels to come into his presence. The resurrection shows that his death has defeated enemies, that he has been the king of peace. He shed his blood to build a new covenant, to establish a new covenant of peace between himself and us, between humans and God. And at his resurrection, he has given all authority over heaven and earth, over all humanity, to rule from the ends of the earth. And now Matthew sees back to this event, an event that the people kind of got but didn't really get, and he says, this was that moment. This did fulfill Zechariah 9's prophecy. And the terrible, tragic irony was that they saw but didn't see and so killed the Lord of glory, their king. But in doing so, shed his blood so that the covenant was established and death is defeated. The whole gospel tells this story 
of what was there to be seen if you had the eyes to see it about who this man is. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of the great King David. When he preached his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know if you remember this, but if you go back, you'll notice this. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. He says it numbers of times. Sometimes he quotes the Old Testament. You've heard the Old Testament says, but I say. Sometimes he quotes a rabbi. You've heard them say, but I say. Each time what he's doing is asserting that he's now the authority. He comes on a mountain to give the sermon as the new word from God to his world. He's healing. It was the word of God spoken that ruled over even sickness, over demons. He's the king, the Bethlehem king. He's the king who brings a new word. He's the king who rules the, the illnesses and sicknesses. In Matthew chapter 8, there's a wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 8 where a centurion, a Roman, comes to Jesus and says, I have a servant who's sick. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Come and heal him. And the man says, no, 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 you don't need to come and heal him. I'm a man of authority and I say to a servant, do this and do that. And they go and do it. You just have to say the word. And Jesus says, this man gets me. And so he says, go, your servant's healed. Without ever going near the man. Because Jesus has authority to speak a word and it be, be done. He's in the midst of a storm and he speaks a word and calms the storm and stills the, the, the wind. He has authority over the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12. God gave the Sabbath rules for the Jews all the way through history. And Jesus comes and breaks the rules of the Sabbath and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, even the Sabbath, I'm the Lord, King. And his rule is over humans. He says to men, come follow me, and they do. Come back just a couple of chapters to Matthew 19. There's an incident here that's worth just reflecting briefly on. There's a man, verse 16, who comes to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a man who desires to inherit eternal life, to go to heaven, to be saved. He wants an answer. He wants a religious answer. What law, what ceremony must I do? Jesus' answer is, verse 21, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now Jesus is not saying salvation's now by philanthropy, by giving your money away. That's not how you get saved. He's not saying that. The essence of this is follow me. I'm the Lord that you're to follow. But he calls on his money, he's challenged to his money because he sees there evidence of the man's desire to not follow Jesus but keep rule himself. And he puts his finger on what was stopping the man. But the key thing here is that Jesus comes saying, the essence of your life is how you treat me. The king who was born, the king who speaks the word of God, the king who heals sickness and disease, the king who calls men and women to obey and follow, and they do. The essence of the Christian faith. It's not a religion. If religion means principles and patterns of behavior and rules and practices, it's not a religion like that. The essence of the Christian faith is a relationship with a person. You boil Christianity down and it's Christ. 
It's about what you do with Jesus. It's the recognition of who Jesus is. He is king. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. The king who comes to bring peace, but comes to rule. He is the Lord, where those words have their fullest possible meaning. King. You know, we have a queen, but I don't think many of you take much notice of that. We have a queen who formally is the head, but she's a figurehead. We nod to her, but largely ignore her. Uh, she has something of a power, but none of us really know what that power is because if she has it, she never exercises it. And we're glad she doesn't. We like her. I like her. I think she's great. But I'm glad she's not running my country. I dare say none of us would like it if she actually exercised any authority over us. We like her just there as an idea. The Bible says Jesus is king. And it means that in its fullest possible way. He is like true kings were. He rules. And we are his subjects. And the heart of any proper response to Jesus the king is to bow the knee. Is to obey. Is to submit. Is to repent where repent means turn back. Repent, the word repent just means to, to change your mind, to, to turn around. For much of my life, I was living it with myself as the king, running my life as I saw fit, how I want to live it. But repentance means recognising the mistake that that has been and changing from it, turning to now come under the rule of another. To repent of ever having rejected his rule and authority. And to now bow the knee to the true king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who will rule from one end of the earth to the other for all time. The heart of any proper response to the gospel message is to repent and bow the knee to this Jesus. And that is exactly what the first preaching of the Christian message was. You know, if you want to kind of find out what true Christianity is, you go back to the Bible, you see what it presents us, and you go back to the Bible and see what those first Christians preached. And what those first Christians preached is repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn back to this God. He is the saviour, his death saves us, but his death saves us from God's judgment upon our rebellion. He saves us by bringing us forgiveness that we might be forgiven of our rebellion and that we might be forgiven so that we might be restored back into proper relationship with God where he is Lord and I bow the knee to him. The very purpose of his coming was to reassert his rule by winning forgiveness for rebels that we can be saved in the assertion of his rule. 
I want to encourage you this morning to explore your own reactions to what I'm saying. How, how do you find yourself responding to the basic Christian message that says he is Lord? He is the absolute ruler over you. The essence of the Christian response is to bow the knee and humble yourself before him. How, how do you find yourself responding? Over the years, uh, I've talked to many people about this. And I think there are often two kinds of reactions. Very broadly, there are many nuances. But one reaction for some is fear. Some find the news that Jesus is Lord and their Lord and they're to bow the knee before him, they find it terrifying. And when you dig, it's because they've lived their life being hurt by powerful people. They've had their life lived under abuse and oppression, being crushed by men particularly. And the thought that Jesus the man is the Lord and authority that I'm to bow the knee to is terrifying. It leaves them cold and fearful. And so can I offer to you to remember that the Jesus who is king, who comes to his city to be enthroned on the cross actually and resurrected to be the Lord of all, the king who comes to his city comes riding on a donkey, lowly and humble. He is gentle in his rule with the weak and fragile there's a softness to his rule he is the one who offers this peel come to me all who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble and you will find rest for your soul he does call you to bow the knee but to the weak and the broken and the oppressed and the crushed and the fearful and the hurting he comes gently and says bow the knee to my good rule i love you so much i lay down my life for you you can trust me i will bring you freedom and i, I will I'll grow your life to be everything that you wished it could be under me. So many need to hear this side of his rule and authority, the one who rules in love, humble and gentle, riding on a donkey. But others need to hear the hardness that his command brings because there's pride. Some people react out of fear because of hurt and oppression, and, and, but others react out of hostility because there's pride that needs to be broken. He is Lord, you are not. He is the one who rules the wind and the waves, who speaks and nature obeys. He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He commands all men and ev women everywhere to repent, to bow the knee. It's a hard word, the word repent. It acknowledges you've been wrong. It, it means you need to own that you have been in rebellion. Repent, turn back. Hand your life back to the rightful Lord. Two sides of this Jesus. 
the soft, gentle riding on a donkey into his city in humility. The powerful ruler of the universe who has all authority over heaven and earth, who commands all men and women everywhere to repent. You know, the danger in church history is that we gravitate towards one or the other. We allow one to dominate to the exclusion of the other, but both are true. Though there is a sense in which the, the strong and powerful rule of Jesus is needed to make the loving rule of Jesus even worth having. Do you know, in the midst of terror and fear, I want someone to show empathy and concern and to be comforting. But it's no use to me, finally, if their comfort can't do anything about the circumstances. But to know that the one who comforts me is the Lord of heaven and earth and can change circumstances, rules over circumstances, can bring me through death itself, that's a great comfort. Thinking about us, the essence of the Christian message, the, you boil the Christian message down, the essence of it is this. Jesus is Lord. He is Saviour. The Lord has died to rescue us from our rebellion, but he rescues us from our rebellion to bring us back under his Lordship. And so the proper response of the true Christian is to repent and bow the knee and hand our life back to him, the one who rules. Now, as I finish, I want to do more than just say that. I want to do two things. I've got a couple of minutes left. I want to speak to you, firstly, if you've never done that, if you've never handed your life over to this Jesus, I want to say to you, uh, this is the Jesus that you will one day stand before, repent and bow the knee now. He is the one who has died by his blood to make it possible for you to be forgiven. He loves you. His rule is good. Do not, do not waste your life. Do not end your life unforgiven outside of his rule. Come back to the one who made you, the lover of your soul, the, the humble, lowly king who rules all things. Repent. Find life in him. But I want to say to those of us who have made that decision, and I want to call on us to examine our lives, to see whether we have really bowed the knee to Jesus. Is Jesus really your Lord? How can you tell? Well, is he shaping your life? Is Jesus the one who is the Lord over your life, shaping your values, your priorities, your actions, your choices? Now, we're all struggling with sin. We all find it difficult to orientate because we have this principle called sin that's by essence rebelliousness. We do all find it. But are you on that journey towards bringing everything to be shaped by the Lord Jesus? Or is he in the back seat of your life, merely there to endorse your decisions? And brothers and sisters, I want to just be frank with you. I've got an agenda this morning. A healthy agenda, I think. We are living in a complex time in history. We are living at a time where 
We're, we're seeing a revolution in society happening around us. It's, and it's a moral revolution. It's, this is unlike anything that we've had for many, many years. We're, we're seeing a revolution that's driven by a desire to be loving and kind. In the past, when I grew up, life was just about getting ahead and making what you want of it. But suddenly now, in the last few years, there's this desire now to have a moral society, a just society, a loving, kind society. And in the midst of that is a great danger because not everything the world calls love is love. How do you tell which of those things that we are being called to exercise or embrace are actually loving things? Well, you work it out by going back to Jesus and his word, his rule in your life. And here's the challenge and here's perhaps the agenda that I'm running with. What I'm concerned about as I look across the Christian world, and I can't look across our church world because you're not even around, but as I look across the Christian world, what I see is, is that Christians are shifting. Our moral vision is shifting. Our ethics are shifting. What we think wrong is and right is is shifting. And I'm not sure it's shifting because we've searched the scriptures more intently and realized we were wrong. It's not that we've gone back to the word of God, the word of Jesus, and been stirred to see what he's telling us and so repented and changed. Knowledge of the scriptures is in an absolute low. There is a massive shift amongst Christians because very largely it seems the concern is we're being shaped by our cultural value, not by the Lordship of Jesus in our life. And I want to raise for you some diagnostic questions. I want to raise for you some diagnostic questions. Some diagnostic questions are in terms of your decisions in life. What are you choosing to do? What are your priorities? Are they reflecting the Lordship of Jesus in your life or simply what you want to do? Repent of that. But I want to offer some diagnostic questions around morality. I want to do it around morality. Let me, let me offer this. If a closer engagement with the scriptures led you to see that Black Lives Matter is a movement to support, would you? Would you? If you looked at the scriptures longer and harder and realized that the Lord Jesus would be supporting it, would you support it? If you're in closer engagement with the scriptures led you to see that there is systemic racism happening in our society, would you own that fact and repent? As a white person, would you recognize your part in that if the Lord Jesus brought you to see it? Would you? Now, I raise these ones particularly because for many in our world, in our church context, uh, many of you are very conservative in your, your ethical mind, your moral framework. Many of you have a kind of a natural instinctive reaction against some of these movements. And I want to call on you to, to reflect on your instincts and your reactions and ask, are they really shaped by the scriptures and the Lord Jesus and how he thinks about the world? Or are they shaped by the way you've been raised, the culture you're living in, your own values? Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong to support Black Lives Matter. I'm simply inviting you to ask the question about what shapes what you do and how you think. 
there's, there's a diagnostic question that perhaps pushes into the more conservative amongst us. But let me offer a diagnostic amongst the more left-leaning, the more progressives amongst us. If you are led to see by a closer engagement with the Scripture that there are different roles in marriage and God intends that to be so, would you embrace that? Even though it put you out of step with the culture around you, would you embrace it? If a closer engagement with the Scriptures led you to see that homosexual practice is wrong, would you embrace that and recognise that and own that? In all of this, uh, in one sense, it doesn't matter the answers on these questions, though I have opinions around them. It doesn't matter so much. What matters is the principle you bring to the way you live your life. Are you someone deeply desirous to be shaped by Jesus or are you simply using Jesus to endorse your own ethical moral framework? Are you simply using Jesus and following him when you agree with him, but otherwise not? The heart of the Christian message is Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 14. For this reason Christ died and returned to life, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. That is the very essence of Christianity, that we all together come under the Lordship of Christ and let him shape our lives to be different to the world around us, to be different to my natural instincts, to be shaped by his rule. I want to encourage you to test your hearts today. Ask the Lord to give you insight. That the Lord might reveal those parts of your lives that are actually driven really by my own values, my own priorities. That he might bring you to a newness of life. A life where you live under his rule more consistently, more wholly and know the joy therefore of life with the great Lord of the universe. How about I pray? In fact, as I do this, I'm going to invite the, uh, the band to come up. Uh, we want them up and around, and, and I'll, uh, I'll lead us in prayer. Take a moment to reflect. Take a moment to reflect on where you are with this great Lord of the universe. Is he the ruler of your life? Have you repented? Ongoingly, are you repenting? Is he shaping all you do? Let me pray now. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have returned to your world in the person of your Son, that you have sent your Son, that you have come in the person of your Son, that you have uh, you brought your King back to his world. We thank you that we see in the Gospels such solid evidence of the truth of who Jesus is. Help us, please, to be captured by these things. To, if we haven't done so, please bring us to repentance, to bow the knee to his lordship. Those of us who do claim is our Lord, please let us grow in our insight and understanding to our own need to more and more be shaped by his lordship. That we might truly be humbled before you and submit every area of our life to your scrutiny that we might bow the knee properly to this Jesus who has died for us and brought us forgiveness, that we might be in his kingdom forever. We pray it in his name. Amen.